Yes, we are going to be looking at uh, just three verses uh, from what we saw in Mark's uh, gospel just a minute ago. Um, But let's start by uh, praying together. Father, thank you so much that you are here present with us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that in this book, we don't just read about you, but we get to meet Jesus. And we pray that now, by your Spirit, you would help us to see him and to hear him speak to us. And we pray that you would change us. Amen. Imagine somebody who is an absolute Doctor Who fanatic. They've really carved out a kind of niche identity for themselves as a Doctor Who fan. Maybe some of you are here, you're hearing yourself described already. They, they feel at home in the Doctor Who fan community. They love the program. They would even say that they find it inspiring. And as well as kind of all the Lego TARDISes and kind of minifigures all over their flat, they've even got a quote from the show on their, as the background on their phone so that whenever they check the time, they can be inspired by it. They will happily tell you that sometimes when they're not sure what to do, they ask themselves, what would the doctor do? <laughs> this person is a serious, serious Whovian. And then imagine one, that is the word apparently, Whovian, if you've never heard it. But imagine one evening they are sat on their sofa, watching, uh, re-watching an old episode on their laptop. And then the the sound that the TARDIS makes, they, they start hearing it, but it's way too loud for the little laptop speakers that they have. And... And their sort of heart starts racing and their palms start sweating and then they can see it squeezing its way into their living room. The TARDIS is right there. And the door swings open and Doctor Who steps out. And he says, I'm looking for an assistant. I can't tell you where we'll be going. I can't promise you it will be safe. I can't, to be honest, promise you that I'll get you back. But we will be saving the universe and it will be fun. And then he holds out his hand. Should this Whovian go with him? Should they take the doctor's hand and step inside the TARDIS? It's a big question, isn't it? Because finding someone inspiring is quite a different thing from trusting them with your life. In the section of Mark's Gospel that we read tonight, Jesus essentially is walking into the living room of all of our lives and inviting us to follow him. In verse 34, which is on the screen here, he gathers everyone around him and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Do you want to be my disciple? Do you want to be with me and learn from me and be part of my new community? Well, it's going to mean denying yourself taking yourself out of the center of your life, giving yourself away. It's going to mean taking up your cross. This is not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It might not even be safe. You've got to be willing to face humiliation and pain and maybe even death. And fundamentally, it's going to mean following me, he says, not following your heart, not following your dreams, but trusting me, listening to me and going where I lead. And he holds out his hand to us and he says, 
Well then, do you want to come? And I love that he says, whoever wants to be my disciple. He is not badgering this crowd. He's not saying, come on, you better get with the program right now. He's also not kind of sugarcoating things to sell himself, to try and sort of summon up more support as if he needs it. He is just inviting people. Anyone, everyone. Here's where I'm going. Do you want to come? And while I imagine that probably amongst us tonight, there's quite a wide range of of what we think about Jesus in general, I would guess that even for those of us who know him and love him and trust him, there's probably a bit of us, maybe quite a big bit, that when we read it like that, we hesitate. We're not sure. And at least part of the reason for that is this. Maybe the deepest, strongest, most repeated message in our culture is just be yourself. You do you. No one else can tell you what to do. You be the you that you want to be. To work out who we really are and what we should do, the message is we need to first and foremost look inside. Listen to your heart. What do you want? And my point isn't just that people say that explicitly. Of course, people do. But what's much more powerful is that over time, that value has been written into the stories that shape us. Films and shows and song lyrics and celebrity uh, kind of narratives until it just subconsciously feels right to us. So without really thinking about it, we feel instinctively that a character choosing to be authentic, to be true to themselves, must be doing the right thing. So we end up feeling that what we ought to do in life to work out who we are and to make decisions is first and foremost to look in. Of course, once you've looked in, you're perfectly welcome to look around at other people for some support and affirmation. And actually, our culture kind of says if, if you still feel like you're lacking something, you're, you're welcome to look up to God or something spiritual for kind of a bit of extra inspiration, for a sense of transcendence. But it has to be in that order. It has to be look in first and only then look around and maybe look up. You can use whatever things or people you like to strengthen the identity that you found inside. Whether it's working out in the gym or working hard on your career or meditating or manifesting or Taylor Swift or Marvel films or Buddha or Jesus or Doctor Who. Anything can be an accessory to your identity. But the most important thing is that we cannot, we must not give away control. We must stay at the center. We must stay in charge of creating our own identity and directing our own lives. You're welcome to watch Doctor Who and uh, let it kind of help you escape the boredom of your everyday life. You're welcome to use it to find a community that accepts you as you are. You're welcome uh, to look to it for inspiring quotes that you can put on your phone. But whatever you do, don't actually step into the TARDIS and lose control. And so when Jesus turns up and holds out his hand to us, at least part of us feels like, whoa, I, I feel like I'm not really supposed to do that. You know, I'll take whatever you've got that might be helpful. If you've got good advice or or a loving community or uh, maybe something kind of uplifting, but I can't follow you like that because I have to stay in charge. I have to stay in charge of myself. I need to keep making my own choices. So the choice 
to follow you isn't really one that I'm supposed to make. But what Jesus does in the next two sentences of what he teaches is give us an incredibly profound reason to wonder, are we sure that that is actually what we want? So if verse 34 was the invitation, here's the reason. The reason Jesus gives us that we might actually want to accept the invitation to take his hand and go with him and lose control. And it's something so counterintuitive that to be honest, I think even if you've been a Christian for 70 years, it surely can't hurt to try and wrap your head and your heart around it again. So verse 35 and 36 say, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So it's a paradoxical, provocative kind of statement. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you willingly lose your life for Jesus and his gospel, his good news, you will actually save it. And actually, he's still making that same point in the final line there. It's a tricky bit to translate into English because the word for soul is actually the same word that he's been using for life. And the point is that Jesus is using the different meanings of that word to make a kind of paradoxical statement. Because it can be used to mean something like what we would mean now by soul if we said, oh, they put their whole heart and soul into it or they really bared their soul to me. That sense of soul as the kind of the, the true inner life, the thing that is inside someone that animates them, that makes them who they are. So it can mean that, or it can uh, just refer to someone's physical life, being alive. And so this helps because actually line one and line kind of three there are making the same point. This is how you might lose your true life. This is how you might forfeit your soul. Jesus says, if you try to save your life, if you try to gain the world, he's talking about grasping, trying to get control, trying to gain things for yourself, trying to get what you want, protect yourself, please yourself. And Jesus says, basically, that will not work. That it's like trying to kind of grab handfuls of sand, the tighter you grasp them, the more they will just slip through your fingers. But Jesus says, on the other hand, if you stop grasping and grabbing and you actually give your life away, then you'll save your true life. Then you'll really come alive and nothing will be able to take that from you. It's a paradox. It's a bit like the thing where uh, if, if someone says, I'll oh, try not to think about a pink elephant. It, it, the technical term I discovered is obliquity. Something is oblique if it's impossible to do by aiming directly at it. So not thinking of a pink elephant is oblique because if you're trying consciously to not think of a pink elephant, it's almost impossible. But if your friend knocks on the door and you go and have a chat with them, you will very easily not think about a pink elephant because you're not trying anymore. You're just doing something else that's more interesting. And Jesus says that life is like that at a really deep level. If you're focused on trying to live your best life, on self-promotion and self-protection, it is actually impossible. The only way to truly live your best life is to stop aiming at that because you found something that matters far more to you. And I think this is true in a kind of 
visible, experiential way in life. Let me show you what I mean by that using three authors. I've been listening recently to a fascinating book called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist. It's pretty much all about this idea. It's just that Brooks isn't writing it uh, sort of from a place of, of wanting to preach a religious conviction. He's writing it from his experience of meeting people. Here's how he starts the book. Every once in a while, I meet a person who radiates joy. These are people who seem to glow with an inner light. They are kind, tranquil, delighted by little things and grateful for big ones. These people are not perfect. They get exhausted and stressed. They make errors in judgment, but they live for others and not for themselves. They've made unshakable commitments. They know why they were put on this earth and derive a deep satisfaction from doing what they have been called to do. Life isn't easy for these people. They've taken on the burdens of others, but they have a serenity about them, a settled resolve. They're interested in you. They make you feel cherished and known and take delight in your good. When you meet these people, you realize that joy is not just a feeling, it can be an outlook. There are temporary highs we all get after we win some victory, and then there is also this other kind of permanent joy that animates people who are not obsessed with themselves, but have given themselves away. When you hear him describe that kind of person, does a part of you really want to be like that? Does a part of you kind of hunger to live that kind of life? I know that I do. And Brooks describes what he's learned of how people get there. And he says that there's all, well, he says loads about it. It's what the whole book's about. But he he has this one beautiful passage where he says, on the way there, something has always come into a person's life that has changed what they want. He says, suddenly they are not interested in what other people tell them to want. They want to want the things that are worth wanting. The world tells them to be a good consumer, but they want to be the one consumed by a moral cause. The world tells them to want independence, but they want interdependence, to be enmeshed in a web of warm relationships. The world tells them to want individual freedom, but they want intimacy, responsibility, and commitment. The world wants them to climb the ladder and pursue success, but they want to be a person for others. The magazines on the magazine rack want them to ask, what can I do to make myself happy? but they glimpse something bigger than personal happiness. I love that. What if the things we've been told to want aren't the things that are truly worth wanting? I think the wisdom of Jesus here that that Brooks is kind of echoing, it invites us to be more skeptical of what our culture tells us, of what we've been told to want. So the second author is Tara Isabella Burton. She's a novelist and a historian. She's recently written this book called Self-Made about the rise of the the kind of great unlabeled religion of the modern West, which is the belief that the truest thing about us is our desires and that we need to create ourselves based on those desires. We need to shape ourselves to be whoever we want to be. But in her conclusion, she writes this. We must ask ourselves how often our desires are stoked by those with a financial interest in making us think that we both can and should shape ourselves, whether they are selling us self-help manuals or skin cream. How can our desires be the truest parts of ourselves when all too often they are shaped by others? I think that's a really haunting question. And I mean, don't just think about 
self-help manuals or, or skin cream. Think about a much bigger industry. Think about social media. You know, who has a financial interest in making us feel like we need to decide who we are entirely on our own and then broadcast that to the world to get uh, affirmation and support from others, but always remain in control ourselves. Because the thing is, that is, at the same time, a description of the philosophy of just be yourself that is everywhere in our culture, and exactly a description of what it is to use social media. It's what just be yourself tells us to do, and it's what social media enables us to do to decide what we want entirely in isolation and then broadcast ourselves to the world, getting affirmation from others, but staying in control of what people see or don't see, of who we follow or who we block. The just-be-yourself ideology and social media, they fit each other perfectly and they feed each other really powerfully. But what if neither of them are actually good for us? What if both of them actually make us lonelier and more miserable? The late novelist David Foster Wallace once made the same point. He said, our default setting is to put ourselves at the center of the universe. And he said that that way of life actually makes us miserable and it enslaves us to our fears and our selfish cravings and it lets us down. But he said this, the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. So here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. What if we actually have no good reason to trust that our you-do-you culture actually knows what's best for us? What if putting yourself first Trying to be yourself and be at the center of your own universe is not the way to find who you really are. It's precisely how you lose who you really are. What if the real way to find yourself is not to just look inside, but is to look up and look out? What if the thing that really makes you come alive is to give yourself away? What if your best self and your best life are only discoverable when you stop aiming directly at them Because you've discovered something that matters so much more. Because you've discovered someone who is worth losing everything for. And Jesus isn't just saying that this is true on a kind of immediate psychological level. He is telling us that this is true ultimately. Now when that crowd heard Jesus talking about taking up your cross and losing your life for me in the gospel, they would have been thinking about literally being crucified by the Romans They would have been thinking about death. And of course, in a way, death is the ultimate proof of Jesus' point. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. However hard we might try to save this life of ours, one way or another, it is going to slip through our fingers. And it is painful to think about that, to think about the many, many people who are close to me, who I love, who right now are living on their default settings, are are probably just trying not to think about death very much, but are basically trying to keep control, trying to gain the world and and save their life and get what they need and hang on to it, when the truth is that is ultimately impossible. If we try to do that, all of us 
will fail eventually. Every one of us one day is going to meet our maker. And when we do, we will realize that trying to keep control and just be ourselves was not okay. That it wasn't what we were made for and it's not right. And Jesus is inviting us to accept that now rather than waste our lives on an illusion and then discover the reality much later, perhaps when it's too late. And he is also saying that we don't need to do that. He is offering us this glorious alternative. He says, if you follow me, if you forget about yourself and freely give yourself away, give your life, not just to any old grander cause, but to me, then not only will you discover what it means to truly be alive now, but when it comes to the crunch, I will give you real life forever. Jesus says, whatever you are risking to follow me, whatever it might cost you, whatever you might lose, it will always and utterly be worth it. A thousand times worth it because I can save your life. I can give you life that goes through death and bursts out the other side into eternity. I can raise you up to a real life, a healed life where you are fully and forever the person you were actually made to be. You know, if, if us now is a pencil sketch, us then is the fully completed work of art in glorious color. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. So we've heard Jesus' radical invitation, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And we've heard the reason he gives us that we might actually want to take him up on it. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for me, you'll save it. But actually, however much we might be persuaded at an intellectual level of that, we are never actually going to wake up and morning after morning accept that invitation and give ourselves to Jesus unless we trust him. We humans, especially in our culture, are commitment phobic. And understandably so, because giving ourselves away, living our lives for someone or something other than ourselves is really, really scary. Because if we give ourselves to someone or something, how do we know they aren't going to exploit us? How do we know they aren't going to let us down? For it to be truly safe to do that, we need to be giving ourselves away to someone who definitely wants the best for us and who we can be sure will not fail us. And this is why I think it's so precious that Jesus doesn't just say, whoever wants to be my disciple, you better go out there and deny yourself and take up your cross. He says, follow me. Why should we deny ourselves and live a life that's centered on others? Why should we be ready to take up our cross and face humiliation and pain? Not because Jesus just wants to test us to sort of prove our loyalty, but because Jesus says that is the path I am walking and I want you to come with me. Jesus never asks us to do anything for him that he has not already done for us. Jesus never asks us to do anything for him that he has not already done for us. If you've closed them, open up your Bibles again and look up at verse 31. 
Because the thing that has prompted Jesus to give us this teaching at all was that he just explained to his disciples what he was going to do, the path he was going to walk. And they were baffled by it. So in, in verse 29, Peter has just said out loud for the first time, you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the, the rescuer, the liberator, God coming to save his people. And Jesus immediately begins to teach them what kind of Messiah he intends to be. That he must verse 31, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed. Jesus took up his cross willingly. It wasn't an accident or a tragedy. It was on purpose. It was an act of love. Jesus was denying himself for us. You know, we were singing about it earlier. When we see Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, the night before he hands himself over to be crucified, he is terrified. Of course he is. And he prays, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. You know, on one level, he doesn't want to go through with it. He doesn't want to go through the agony of hell itself. But Jesus denied himself. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He denied himself. He poured out his life. He gave himself away. And he did it for us. Brothers and sisters, he did it for you. He did it because he loves us. And he was willing to bear our shame and humiliation, to share all of our suffering, and to die our death for us in our place, to go through hell for us, so that he could forgive us all of our guilt and our failures and welcome us into his family forever. How do we know that Jesus really does want the best for us? Because if he didn't, why on earth would he have done that? We can trust him because we know that he loves us to death. We can give everything to him because he has given everything for us. And then how do we know that he can actually keep his promise, that he actually can give us life, whatever happens? Well, because as he promised, he rose again after three days. He demonstrated in history that he has overpowered death. He demonstrated in history that he has a real, healed, everlasting life that he can freely share with us. This is the the gospel, the good news that he invites us to give our lives for. That he has loved us to death and he has come out the other side and he is inviting us to follow him through into that new, resurrected, beautiful life. Jesus does not ask us to do anything here that he has not already done for us. So where does this all leave us? I've been wrestling this week with what this says to us in all of our different situations, the different ways that we might react to it. And I think firstly, it really speaks straight to us whenever we have strong desires that we are tempted to pursue in a way that we know Jesus has called us away from. Now we might have strong desires for status, or for sex, or for something else. And we're tempted to pursue those in ways we know Jesus has told us not to. And in those situations, it is so, so tempting to try and kind of demote Jesus. 
to, to want to stay kind of a Christian and to find it all inspiring and perhaps enjoy the, the, the community, but to make Jesus essentially an accessory to the identity that we have chosen for ourselves. To look in and make the real decisions there before we let ourselves look up and listen to him. And I imagine that we are all tempted by that in different ways. But God is saying to us here, don't just follow your heart. You can't trust your heart. It doesn't know what's good for it. It is confused and conflicted and slippery. Follow Jesus. You can trust him. He has given everything for you. Don't conform and let social media or whoever else convince you to just look inside yourself and then broadcast it to the world, let Jesus actually make you into the person that you were created to be. You will not regret it. You will not regret it. Or perhaps for some of us, our reaction's a bit different. I imagine that for some of us, it's more that you hear the call of this passage and it immediately kind of triggers your sense of inadequacy. You think, look, I'm trying to do this, but there's no way I'm doing what he's saying here. It's so radical. You just feel like you can't ever live up to it. it. It stirs up your sense of shame. And if that's you, can I say, Jesus, when he says this to you, he is not giving you a standard to try and measure yourself against. He is holding out his hand to you. He is giving you an invitation to accept. And we accept that invitation once and for all in our baptism. We say yes to him. We take his hand. We step into the TARDIS. And we can rest assured that Jesus will take us with him from then on. We all struggle and and wobble and need his help to live it out day by day. But the truth is that if we've taken his hand, if we're saying, look, I want to try and follow you, I want to live my life for you, we can rest assured that he is not looking at our stumbling efforts and judging us and saying, no, come on, you've got to be better than that. No. He looks at us and he says, you are so precious to me that I was glad to deny myself and take up my cross and give my life for you so that you could come and be with me. I'm so glad that you're on this road, that you're following me. Jesus is delighted that we are following him and he will lead us and help us every step of the way and however much we stumble, he will never leave us behind. Well, perhaps what you need to hear tonight is very simply the reassurance in this. You maybe have been giving yourself away for Jesus for years, maybe for 40, 50, 60 years, or maybe you've only just started, but perhaps in some way right now it is especially costly or painful. If that is you, just please hear Jesus saying to you, whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you are pouring out your life for him, know that not one drop of it will be wasted. Know that you are not missing out. You are not forfeiting your soul. You are not losing your life. You are finding it. Or perhaps some of us here tonight, this all feels kind of quite new, quite intense. We we feel like, we're just sort of looking in and we don't really know Jesus very much and, and 
we're not at all sure that we would trust him like this. And, and tonight, I just want to say, if that's you, Jesus is speaking to you too. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That invitation is deeply urgent. It's profoundly important. But it is also unhurried. Because you can't trust a person unless you know them. So let me just really encourage you, if this is you, from the bottom of my heart, to get to know Jesus better. To do whatever you need to do to get to know Jesus until you can trust him. Come back and join us here week after week and and see what Jesus is like and see what it's like to live with him and follow him. And we'd be delighted to, to give you a Bible or one of the Gospels so that you can read it for yourself. Or even better, you could read it with a friend and, and get to grips with it together. But please, get to know Jesus better until you can trust him. Or at the very least, you know who you're walking away from. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you don't ask us to do anything for you that you haven't already done for us. Thank you that you have denied yourself, that you've taken up your cross and you've laid down your life for us. Jesus, we struggle every day to trust you. Please help us. Help us to follow you above everything else, even above our own hearts. And help us to keep going. Help us to know that you are leading us into real life, now and forever. And help us to know that you will never leave us behind. Amen.